Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies, Foodies Watching, Watching movies. movies, a podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC Network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon so we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. The following is a Journey into Comics Network production. From the suburbs of Chicago and Illinois, this is The Poor Report with your host, Andrew Poor. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode 42 of The Poor Report. 42 episodes, getting ever closer to that magical number of 50. Now, for those of you who don't know what this show is about, this show covers news, all things news, and most of the time it's just stuff that I find on the internet that I will pass along to you, things that I found interesting or we're talking about, and for this week, since last week I decided to do a Trump-free episode, this week will be all about Trump, and because in the past couple of weeks there's been a lot of Trump-related, and this week especially we have the G7 summit, the meeting with Kim Jong-un, uh, more trade news... Some interesting facts about the president's habits when it comes to presidential documents. So we'll talk about all of that. And that's what we're going to jump to right away. Now, when I was preparing this episode, I was trying to figure out what to actually talk about. It's been kind of a hectic week in my personal life. I closed on my house, which I'll talk about on my other podcast I do with my lovely fiance Liz, called Adulting Ain't Easy. That'll be out... A week from Wednesday, so a week from tomorrow, which is exciting for those of you listening. So check that out. It'll be all about our the home buying process, the closing, um, new home ownership. So definitely check that out if you have any interest whatsoever. That's it. Um, you can check that out at drainedcomics.com, where you can find my show. You can also check us out on social media at... Uh, it's all at Adulting's Heart on Facebook and Twitter. We don't have an Instagram, but maybe in the future we will. So, But with that, I should probably jump into why you all came here, and that is the news. Now, I, and I pulled these articles. I thought it was kind of interesting, some of the stuff. But I'm going to jump in with the fun one first. And that's just from a Politico article called Meet the Guy Who Tapes Trump's Papers Back Together. The president's unofficial filing system, in quotes, involves tearing up documents into pieces even when they're supposed to be preserved. Solomon Larty spent his first five months of the Trump administration working in the old executive office building, standing over a desk with scraps of paper spread out in front of him. Larty, who earned an annual salary of $65,969 as a records management analyst, was a career government official with close to 30 years under his belt. But he had never seen anything like this in any previous administration he had worked for. He had never had to tape the president's papers back together again. Armed with rolls of clear scotch tape, Lardy and his colleagues would sift through large piles of shredded paper and put them back together, he said, like a jigsaw puzzle. Sometimes they would just be split down the middle, but other times they would be torn into pieces so small they looked like confetti. It was a painstaking process that was a result of a clash between legal requirements to preserve White House records and President Donald Trump's odd and enduring habit of ripping up papers when he's done with them. What some people described as his unofficial filing system. 
Under the Presidential Records Act, the White House must preserve all memos, letters, emails, and papers that the president touches. Send to the National Archives for safekeeping as historical records. But White House aides realized early on that they were unable to stop Trump from ripping up paper after he was done with it and throwing it in the trash or on the floor, according to people familiar with the practice, and said they chose to clean it up for him in order to make sure the president wasn't violating the law. Staffers said the fragments of paper collected from the Oval Office as well as from private residents and sent it over to records management across the street from the White House for Larkey and his colleagues to reassemble. We got Scott's tape, the clear kind Lardy recalled in an interview. You found pieces and taped them back together and then you gave it back to the supervisor. The restored papers would then be sent to National Archives to be properly filed away. Lardy said the papers he received include newspaper clips on which Trump had scribbled notes or circled words, invitations, and letters from constituents or lawmakers on the Hill, including Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. I had a letter from Schumer. He tore it up, he said. It was the craziest thing. He even he ripped papers into tiny pieces. Lardy did not work alone. He had his, he has his entire apartment was dedicated to the task of taping back, of taping paper back together in the opening months of the Trump administration. One of his colleagues, Reginald Young Jr., who worked as a senior records management analyst, said that during over two decades of government service, he had never been asked to do such a thing. We had to endure this under the Trump administration, Young said. I'm looking at my director and saying, are you guys serious? We're making more than $60,000 a year. We need to be doing far more important things than this. It felt like the lowest form of work you can take on without having to empty the trash cans. The White House did not comment on the president's paper-ripping habit, according to Young and Larty. Staffers in the Records Department were still designated to the task of taping together the scraps as recently as this spring. Larty and Young described a system that stands in stark contrast to how records management was conducted under the Obama administration, which ran a structured paperwork process. All of the official paper that went into the Oval Office came back out again, to the best of my knowledge said Lisa Brown, who served as President Barack Obama's first staff secretary. I never remember the president throwing any official paper away. Brown describes a regiment process for dealing with presidential records. She said all paper that was going to the president would go in a folder with labels, one color for decision memos, for example, and another one for letters. Documents would go out of the, to the president and then come back to the staff secretary's office in the same folder for distribution and handling. It really was a structured process. Brown said Obama denied on preserving documents for history, even ones he was not technically required to send to the National Archives. I remember the day he sent down to me his race speech from the campaign handwritten. She said, all the campaign material didn't need to come to the, into the White House or go to the archives. Trump, in contrast, does not have any of those preservationist instincts. One person familiar with how Trump operates in the Oval Office said he would rip up anything that happened to be on his desk that he was done with. Some aides advised him to stop, but the habit proved difficult to break. Despite the president's apparent disregard of the Presidential Records Act, sources said aides around him have tried to take an overly inclusive approach to what would be considered a presidential record. Anything that's not purely personal, even just a note handed to an aide at a rally that was passed on to Trump, has been considered a record deemed worthy of being sent to records, which staffers could make sure the White House was being compliant with the law. The team is now smaller after many of the career officials were cleared out earlier this year. Lardy, 54, and Young, 48, were career government officials who worked together in records management until this spring when both were abruptly terminated from their jobs. Both are now unemployed and still full of questions about why they were stripped of their badges with no explanation and marched off the White House grounds by Secret Service. Irene Parada, the head of Human Resources who personally terminated both men, did not respond to an email requesting comment. A White House spokesman also did not respond to a request for comment about the termination. 
Young agreed to speak to Politico after this reporter contacted him to inquire about his termination. He then put the reporter in touch with Lardy, whose story of his dismissal and the work he is asked to do during his final year of work under the Trump administration corroborated Young's account. Both men originally speak to Politico for a story about why they believe they were unfairly terminated from jobs they expected to hold on to until they retired. Most of their forced assigned resignation letters without being given an explanation for why they were being dismissed. In the course of explaining what their work at the White House entailed, however, both describe in detail the process of taping back together scraps of paper that the president had ripped up and thrown out. Both said they were happy to discuss the oddity of a job they began to view as a sort of punishment. They did not, however, approach a reporter with the intent to leak embarrassing information about the president. Lardy said he was fired at the end of the workday on March 23rd with no warning. His top secret security clearance was revoked, he said. Later, five boxes of his personal belongings were mailed to his home. I was stunned, he said. I asked them. Why can't you all tell me something? I've gotten comfortable. I was going to retire. I didn't, would have never thought I would have gotten fired. He signed a pre-written resignation letter that said he was leaving to pursue other opportunities, but he is still unemployed. Young, who was terminated April 19th, said he fought back and had his official status changed from resigned to terminated. I was coerced to sign a resignation later at the time, then they escorted me to the garage and took my parking placard. He described the firing as traumatic and frustrating. The only excuse I've ever gotten from them, he said, was that you serve at the pleasure of the president. So, that's the end of the article, and it's kind of interesting. It wouldn't surprise me if this is true, but this also could be a story about two guys who were wrongfully terminated or acting out and spreading this kind of story. Both could be accurate. It's kind of hard to say here, but I'm leaning towards there just being some cuts across the board and some positions being removed. But the fact that President Trump tears up his documents or rips it in two and throws it away is not all unsurprising given how you get from just any time he talks or how his physical presence is in places. That's not even something I do, but that's that's just me. I guess with that, I'll move on to more important news, and that was regarding the G7 summit that happened earlier this past week. So the first thing involves a, a viral photo that came from Germany regarding the G7. So the G7 photo that went viral Saturday appeared to say 1,000 words. President Trump sitting with his arms crossed with German Chancellor Angela Merkel facing him. Leaning forward and surrounded by other leaders, released by the German federal government, it contrasted heavily with the official White House photos that showed more conciliatory photos, conciliatory photos of Mr. Trump and the other world leaders. The photo from Merkel's office went viral Saturday before Mr. Trump retracted his earlier signing of the final statement. Mr. Trump tweeted that after false statements from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, he instructed his, his representatives not to endorse the final communique. Uh, in a press conference after Mr. Trump left, Trudeau said, Retaliatory tariffs will go into effect July 1st. Canadians were polite, were reasonable, we also will not be pushed around, Trudeau said. Trudeau, though, does not appear to be in the German photo, perhaps showing other tensions during the summit. Aside from Merkel, the other leaders are Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, Japanese Deputy Chief Cabinet Secretary Yasutoshi Nishimura, French President Emmanuel Macron, and British Prime Minister Theresa May. Also pictured are U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton and Larry Kudlow, Director of the U.S. National Economic Council. Another photo that received considerable attention featured Mr. Trump arriving late to the Gender Equality Advisory Council breakfast Saturday morning. In the photo, IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde and Merkel are staring at Mr. Trump as he walked in. 
According to the pool report, Mr. Trump arrived late to the breakfast with Trudeau, saying in his opening remarks, any stragglers will come in as they arrive. Mr. Trump arrived while Gender Equality Advisory Council co-chair Isabel Houdon was speaking. Security posts allowed to open up a path for Mr. Trump through a throng of journalists and cameramen. The camera clicks for Mr. Trump almost drowned out Houdon. Morcon stared at Mr. Trump after he sat down. Trudeau and Kane Foreign Minister... Christia Freeland later tweeted photos of the women's empowering empowerment meeting showing Mr. Trump's empty chair. The seven leaders posed Friday for a friendly photo showing Chavo's mountains in the background. The photos also contrast from the viral photo from the 2015 G7 summit, which showed former President Barack Obama. The summit's viral photo showed Mr. Obama seated while Merkel spoke with her arms outstretched, surrounded by the picturesque German Alps in Bavaria. That was kind of a t- mouthful. So it seems like things were... Moving along there, in a follow-up article from Fox News, uh, Trump pulls out of joint G7 statement and attacks Trudeau. The annual G7 summit appears to have weathered tensions over President Donald Trump's threats of a tariff-fueled trade war until the Mercurial American pulled out of a joint statement while citing false statements by Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. It was an unprecedented attack on the leader of the U.S. neighbor and ally. Trump was aboard Air Force One, headed to an historic summit with North Korea's Kim Jong-un when he issued a pair of tweets Saturday criticizing the G7 hosts and stepping back from the generally positive tone that he ended the two-day meeting. A few hours earlier, Trudeau had told reporters that all seven leaders had come together to sign the joint declaration. Trudeau said he had reiterated to Trump that tariffs would harm industries and workers on both sides of the U.S.-Canada border. He said unleashing retaliatory measures is not something I relish doing, but he wouldn't hesitate to do so because I was always protect Canadian workers and Canadian interests. As Canadians, we're, we are polite, we're reasonable, but we also will not be pushed around, Trudeau said. And he described all seven leaders coming together to sign a joint declaration despite having some strong, firm conversations on trade, and specifically on American tariffs. In the air by then, Trump tweeted, based on Justin's false statements at his news conference and the fact that Canada is charging massive tariffs to our U.S. farmers, workers, and companies, I've instructed our U.S. reps not to endorse the communique as we look for look at tariffs on automobile flooding the U.S. market. He followed by tweeting, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada has acted so meek and mild during our G7 meeting, only to give a news conference after I left saying that U.S. tariffs were kind of insulting and he will not be pushed around. Very dishonest and weak, our tariffs are in response to his of 270% on dairy. A spokesman for Trudeau did not address Trump's insults in a statement. We are focused on everything we accomplished here at the G7 Summit, spokesman Cameron Ahmad said. The Prime Minister said nothing he hasn't said before, both in public and in private conversations with the President. Reporters asked Trudeau for his reaction. He and his wife and another couple took an evening stroll, but the Prime Minister begged off, Good to see you guys. It was a beautiful evening, a great weekend, he said. Before leaving for Singapore, Trump had delivered a stark warning to America's trading partners not to counter his decision to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum imports. But Trudeau, whose nation was among those singled out by Trump, pushed back and said he would not hesitate to retaliate against his neighbor to the south. If they retaliate, they're making a mistake, Trump declared before departing the annual Group of Seven summit, which includes Britain, Italy, France, Germany, and Japan. Trump himself and his relationship with allies were a 10 just before he left the summit, but his abbreviated stay at the Quebec resort saw him continuing the same type of rough talks on trade as when he departed the White House when he accused Trudeau of being in. Dignant. The summit came during an ongoing trade dispute with China and served as a precursor to an unprecedented meeting with Kim in which Trump has sought to extend a hand to the Asian autocrat who has long bedeviled the international order. 
His message from Quebec to Singapore is that he is going to meld the industrial democracies to his will and bring back Russia, said Steve Bannon, Trump's former campaign and White House advisor. Bannon said China is now on notice that Trump will not back down from even allies' complaints in his goal of America first. Speaking on Saturday during a rare solo news conference, Trump said he pressed for the G7 countries to eliminate all tariffs, trade barriers, and subsidies in their trading practices. He reiterated his long-standing view that the U.S. has been taken advantage of in a global trade. He said, We're like the piggy bank that everybody's robbing and that ends. He said U.S. farmers have been harmed by tariffs and other barriers and warned that U.S. trading partners would need to provide him with more favorable terms. It's going to stop or we'll stop trading with them, he said. Trump cited progress on reaching an agreement on the North American Free Trade Agreement with Canada and Mexico, saying the final outcome would lead to either an improved trade deal or separate pacts with the two U.S. neighbors. Trump said that he discussed two types of sunset provisions in which any of the countries could leave the deal. Canadian officials said the leaders discussed accelerating the pace of the talks. But Trudeau objected strenuously to a sunset clause of any length. If you put an expiry date on a trade deal, that's not a trade deal. That's our unequivocal position, he said. Prior to his arrival on Friday, the president injected additional controversy by suggesting that the G7 offer a seat at the table to Russia, which was ousted from the group in 2014. Trump said Saturday that readmitting Russia to the elite club would be an asset, telling reporters, we're looking for peace in the world, Trump said. He had not spoken with Russian President Vladimir Putin in a while. Discussing Russia's absence, Trump made the vague comment that something happened a while where Russia is no longer in. I think it would be an asset to have Russia back in. In fact, Russia was expelled from what was then the G8 after it invaded and annexed Crimea and for its support for pro-Russia separatists in Ukraine. Trump placed the blame on his predecessor, President Barack Obama. He was the one who let Crimea get away. That was during his administration, he said, adding, Obama can say all he wants, but he allowed Russia to take Crimea. I may have had a much different attitude. It was not clear what Trump thought Obama should have done to prevent Putin from sending in Russian troops to seize the Black Sea Peninsula from neighboring Ukraine. Trudeau said he told Trump that readmitting Russia is not something that we are even remotely looking at, at at this time. So that's another interesting post, and that goes to another article I have from Politico, which is White House ratchets up trade war with special place in hell slug at Trudeau. Tensions between the U.S. and Canada mounted on Sunday, even as President Donald Trump tried to shift his attention to North Korea, with one U.S. official saying that there is a special place in hell for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau after bitter words between the two leaders. National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow said Sunday that Trudeau really kind of stabbed us in the back when the Canadian leader told reporters Saturday that his country would stick to its plan to apply retaliatory tariffs on certain U.S. exports beginning next month. There's a special place in hell for any foreign leader that engages in bad faith diplomacy with President Donald J. Trump and then tries to stab him in the back on the way out the door. White House advisor Peter Navarro said Sunday on Fox News, and that's what bad faith Justin Trudeau did with that stunt press conference. Trudeau's administration punched back Sunday, asked repeatedly by reporters about Navarro's special place in hell remark. Foreign Affairs Minister Christian Freeland said Canada's not conducting its diplomacy through ad hominem attacks. One thing that I give thanks for is that I'm not responsible for explaining the reasoning behind any comments made by the officials of any foreign government. Freeland told reporters in Quebec City. The Trudeau comments that seemed to set off the latest bickering came after Trump left the G7 leaders gather in Canada early and after the U.S. leader had previously decided to slap tariffs on aluminum and steel exports from Canada, but U.S. officials nonetheless took Trudeau's trade remarks personally ahead of the potentially tricky negotiations 
with North Korea's Kim Jong-un and Trump yanked U.S. supporters from a joint communique with the other G7 countries as a result. Trump has hoped his talks with Kim could produce a definite defining foreign policy victory and would force his critics to validate his view of the world and give him a big accomplishment to tout heading into his 2020 re-election campaign. Recently, he has tried to play down expectations from the week's initial meetings, but U.S. officials remain concerned about showing strength heading into the summit. POTUS is not going to let a Canadian prime minister push him around on the eve of this, Kudlow said on CNN on Sunday. He is not going to permit any show of weakness on the trip to negotiate with North Korea. He said, Kim must now see America, Kim must not see American weakness. The decision to withdraw from the communique further irked other G7 leaders. German Chancellor Angela Merkel called the development depressing and sobering. Other current and former officials were more blunt in their thoughts on the situation. European Council President Donald Tusk played off Navarro's words in praising Trudeau. There's a special place in heaven for Justin Trudeau, Tusk wrote on Twitter. Canada, thank you for the being the perfect organization of G7. A former Prime Minister of Belgium, Guy Verhofstadt, tweeted out Sunday's Saturday's Trump-Merkel picture with a barbed caption. Just tell us what Vladimir has on you. Maybe we can help. The White House said Trump, who has arrived in Singapore for the meeting, spent the Air Force One trip preparing for the summit. The first meeting between U.S. and North Korea delegations is expected Monday. Meanwhile, the trade dispute closer to home remains unresolved. Freeland said the U.S. tariffs on Canadian aluminum and steel are insulting and that Canada's retaliatory tariffs would proceed on July 1st. Canada does not believe that ad hominem attacks are particularly appropriate or useful to conduct our relations with other countries, she said, adding that she had a good meeting with the U.S. Trade Representative Robert uh, Lightseer on Friday afternoon about NAFTA and the North American Free Trade Agreement, which is being rewritten. She said she was to speak with him again Sunday. We get our meeting on Friday that we would continue our negotiations on NAFTA. The U.S. had a 17.5 billion goods trade deficit with Canada in 2017, but a 26 billion services trade surplus, according to Lightyear's office. The White House has argued that trade balance is potentially misleading because of international goods shipped through the U.S. into Canada. There is no U.S. trade deficit with Canada, especially if you count services. Gary Huffbauer, a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, said in an interview with Politico on Sunday. This is a very selective reading of statistics. One result of this blow-up that Trump had dug in for is that there is going to be a lot of sympathy in the U.S. Congress and among the American people for Canada, uh, Huffbauer said. So lots of fun resulted in the G7 summit, and that brings me to an opinion piece from Huffington Post calling the lasting damage of Trump's disastrous diplomacy. It's hardly a surprise that Donald Trump blew up the Group of Seven summit. In his warped view of the world, America's closest allies are enemies, and the nations that represent dangerous threats are friends. Thus, Russia is to be welcomed back, while Canada as a benign neighbor, as exists, is a menace for taking advantage of the U.S. on trade. The European Union, whose subsidy and open market policies are on par with our own, seems a bigger threat than mercantilist China. In North Korea's dictator Kim Jong-un gets warmer words on the lead than the leaders of Europe. Has the word gone mad? No, only Donald Trump. Trump's bullshit in a China shop can be best understood on three levels. First, sheer ignorance. Second, thin skin, petulance, and pike. And barely papering over differences at the actual summit. Trump destroyed whatever shred of goodwill remained in a tweet storm triggered by the effrontery of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's criticisms. But the third reason, the most dangerous of all... Corruption and opportunism. Trump gave China a pass on the national security risks of the telecom company ZTE 
as an apparent thank you for Chinese gifts to his business empire and that of his daughter Ivanka. He keeps cutting Russian President Vladimir Putin slack after use of Russian bailouts for Trump's business empire. He is now in danger of being taken to the cleaners by North Korea because Kim is better at sucking up to Trump than, say, Trudeau or French President Emmanuel Macron, and because Trump's desperately needs a symbolic win. In the wake of the G7 fiasco, the pressing question are these. How much irreversible damage is Trump doing, and how long will it take for Republicans to rein him in or push him out? The damage with the European and North American allies is likely temporary. Basically, Europe has decided to quarantine Trump for the duration. There'll be some economic harm for these trade skirmishes, but the deeper amity and the sense of common interest among the nations of the West runs strong, and relations will put be put back on track once Trump is gone. Trump's also given the gift to the usually fractious Europeans by reminding them of the importance of their own unity. In Canada, the popularity of Justin Trudeau, a good man and a good progressive, will rise thanks to his standing up to Trump's infantile bullying. And in Mexico, leftist candidate Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador has a lead of 27% in polling ahead of the July presidential election and is only helped further by Trump's war of insults. Trump has managed to unite the rest of the West against the United States and himself. More serious is amateurist diplomacy with Russia, North Korea, and China. China has a well-conceived and executed program known as Made in China 2025, through which Beijing hopes to achieve dominance in all of the cutting-edge technologies from artificial intelligence to electric power and electric vehicles to 5G wireless networking. Some of this reflects China's cheating on the global trade system. Some of it is a result of China's own planning system and diligence. The West had better respond and in a unified way, but Trump's self-serving incompetence does serious damage and time is short. Russia continues its programs of destabilizing Western democracy unmolested. While Trump was blowing up the G7 summit, his director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, was speaking at a conference in Normandy. These Russian actions are purposeful and premeditated, and they represent an all-out assault by Vladimir Putin on the rule of law, Western ideals, and democratic norms. The Russians are actively seeking to divide our alliance, and we must not allow this to happen, Coates warned. Even more than Putin, it is Trump who is succeeding in dividing the Western alliance. Meanwhile, the wrong sort of nuclear deal with North Korea could allow Trump the theatrical appearance of a diplomatic win while permitting Kim to continue with a clandestine nuclear program. This, of course, is exactly what Trump accused Barack Obama of doing with Iran, only worse. So what will it take for his own party to say enough? There's some encouraging green shoots. A bipartisan group of 27 senators organized by Florida Senator Marco Rubio sent an angry letter objecting to Trump's coddling of ZTE. Republican members of the House have joined Democrats in a discharge petition forcing actions on long-blocked immigration reform. The number of Republicans willing to speak out against Trump foreign policy follies is slowly growing. But more criticism of Trump usually backfires when he understands his power. Ultimately, nothing short of Trump's removal will rein him in. And this is from Robert uh, Kuttner, uh, co-editor of the American Prospect and professor at Brandeis University's Heller School. His new book is Can Democracy Survive Global Capitalism? I don't know if I necessarily agree with everything in this, but it's interesting to see one person's perspective on the reasons behind Trump's actions and his view of diplomacy and his relationships with other foreign countries. So we'll see kind of what comes of the next few days as Trump sits down with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. And speaking of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, Trump, like I said in previous articles, has touched down in the Southeast Asian city-state Sunday evening of Singapore, 36 hours before his highly anticipated summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. 
Trump arrived on Air Force One at Singapore's Paya Labar Air Base at 8.21 p.m. local time when he was greeted by Singapore's Foreign Minister Vivian Balakrishnan. Kim arrived at Singapore's commercial airport on an Air China Boeing 747 just more than five hours earlier. Trump asked by reporters as he arrived in Singapore how he feels about the summit, said very good, before climbing into his limousine and heading to the hotel. The U.S. president flew to Singapore from Canada, where he participated in an especially contentious G7 summit that came after he triggered a trade dispute with several of the U.S. closest allies. The quick succession of combative G7 meetings and his arrival in Singapore for a summit with North Koreans dictator set up a striking contrast, best captured by a pair of tweets Trump issued after leaving Canada in which he slammed Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau as very dishonest and weak and reneged on U.S. plans to sign a joint communique with the G7 leaders. Based on Justin's false statements at his news conference and the fact that Canada is charging massive tariffs on our U.S. farmers, workers, and companies, I've instructed our U.S. reps not to endorse the communique as we look at tariffs on automobiles flooding the U.S. market. Hours earlier, Trump had claimed his relationship with Trudeau and the leaders of France and Germany is a 10 and sent a CNN reporter as fake news for the U.S. ties with its class size has frayed. During the same impromptu news conference of the G7, Trump said he felt optimistic about his meeting with Kim, which will be the first between a, US, a sitting U.S. president and North Korean leader, but also made clear Kim had a one-time shot. I felt that Kim Jong-un wants to do something great for his people, and he has the opportunity, and he won't have the opportunity again. It's never going to be there again, Trump said on Saturday. He's got an opportunity, the likes of which I think almost, if you look into history, very few people have ever had. You can take the nation with those great people and truly make it great. So it's a one-time, it's a one-time shot. I think it's going to work out very well. He's a very interesting way of speaking. When I read quotes from him, it seems almost like that episode of The Office where Michael Scott is asked a question, I think by David Wallace or... um. And he starts going on and on about, um, he just, just rambles on for a few minutes and then says, sometimes I don't know where, and then he says into the camera later, he says, sometimes I don't know where conversation ending when I started. I just hope I get there. And that kind of sounds like how Trump does most of his talking. And I don't know. We'll kind of see how the rest of this goes. And I think from what I've read, which could be just a false rumor or fake news or whatever you want to call it, that. Former Chicago Bull Dennis Rodman will also be at this Singapore event because, as most of you know, he is a close personal friend or allied to Kim Jong-un or confidant. I don't know what his... He's kind of a weird dude from stories you see and was kind of crazy even well before where he is now. So I'm sure next episode I'll have some more information regarding the... The historic summit between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. So I'll definitely be following with that. But I think that kind of wraps up this Trump-filled episode. So I think that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to episode 42. If you have any thoughts, feedback, questions, comments, anything you want to ask me or things I should do differently or just you know, feedback, I'm open to it. You can message me directly on Facebook at the Poor we have a page there, and you can message me anytime if you have questions. You can also reach out to our Journeynomics general page, and Nate will give me that message. And you can check us on all of their social media at The Poor Rapport. So, uh, yeah, definitely thank you guys for checking out. And as always, just keep trying to find all the information you can. As Nate said, during the comments, you keep filling your brains with shit. And I think just 
research and find the right way to things move forward. I don't have a flashy slogan or way to end that. Maybe I'll think of one one day. I know I tried doing that thing regarding the the media's goal is to work for the governor, not the governors, or I can't remember the exact quote now, and it didn't really work out. It's just too long, but I'm rambling. It's late. It's been a long week dealing with house stuff, so I want to thank you guys again for listening. That's the poor report for this week. I am Andrew Poor. Have a great week.